Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I welcome you to what has turning out to be the conclusion of a civil society week here in the Lipman Room. A week ago Tuesday, Stanley Katz from Princeton University spoke on constitutionalism and civil society. And this afternoon, we're pleased to, to welcome uh, Kira Irie from Harvard University to speak on the making of an international civil society. Professor Irie is coming back to Berkeley. I just learned from Diane Clements that he filled in for her during a leave in 1976. Uh, and he has also taught uh, at this end of the country at Santa Cruz. Professor Irie was born in Tokyo in 1934, 10 years before the gift that established the endowment of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures. He completed high school in Japan and then came to this country and received his bachelor's degree from Harvard, uh, Haverford College in 1957. I noticed that as an undergraduate, Professor Irie wrote on the Anglican clergy. And looking at the distinguished list of colonial historians that are provided for you in the program as earlier holders of the Jefferson invitation, I noticed that the, uh, there is no better leading indicator of what it takes to make a Jefferson lecture than a good sound knowledge of the Anglican clergy in the Atlantic community. He went on to complete a PhD at Harvard in US and East Asian history in 1961. And in addition to the teaching assignments in California that I mentioned, he also taught at the University of Rochester, at the University of Chicago, before becoming professor of history at Harvard in 1989. Two years later, he was named the Charles Warren Professor of American History. Professor Irie has written, by my count, 11 books and has reached the height of his profession as president of the American Historical Association in 1988. His first book was After Imperialism, The Search for a New Order in the Far East. And his most recent works, published in 1997, were Japan and the Wider World and the cultural internationalism, excuse me, cultural internationalism and the world order. The Jefferson uh, Lectures Committee was particularly pleased to find a scholar with a perspective on American democracy who comes from uh, a, a, across a different ocean looking at our society and indeed the problems of democratic society in a different way welcome him to Berkeley for his talk on the making of an international civil society. Professor Irie. Thank you very much, Mr. Leonard, and um, my friends and professor colleagues, um, many friends from uh, this community, very happy to um, be here, to be back here for the first time since 1976. And as Professor Lennon mentioned, 
um, Professor Clemens was, uh, went on leave and she has asked me to come and replace her for one quarter, which uh, I did and was really shocked to realize just the other day that it was already 24 years ago that I did that and many, many things have happened since then. But um, um, some things do not change. I think that is my, my real sense of uh, indebtedness to uh, what Berkeley did to me then at the time and also the state of California when I taught uh, for two years at Santa Cruz. Those were marvelous experiences for me and for my family. It's nice to be back. And I'm particularly honored to have been invited to give one of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures this year. Um, Unlike Stanley Katz, who gave uh, the other memorial lecture, Je Jefferson Memorial Lecture this year, I'm not a Jefferson scholar. I'm not really a scholar of American constitutionalism, American history. My field is more in uh, foreign affairs, American foreign affairs in particular, but also American East Asian relations, international relations um, as a whole. And it's uh, in that context that I have tried to think about the ways in which one can talk about the emergence or an apparent emergence, I believe, of what I call an international civil society. Um, that may be my rather tenuous connection with Thomas Jefferson, but I hope that what I'm going to present may indicate some of the implications of um, at least some of the Jeffersonian ideas about the growth of a democracy not just in the United States, but abroad as well. But what I'm going to do is to read a chapter from a book um, whose draft I just completed um, a couple of days ago, uh, a rather short book, which, which I call, the, the main title is going to be called Global Community. The, the subtitle is The Role of International Organizations in the Making of the Contemporary World. What I mean by that is that I do think that there is something like a global community or an international civil society emerging. Um, and that in the, that story, the story of uh, the emergence of something like that, like a global community, international organizations, uh, I think, have played a very important role. And what I mean by international organizations are two things. Uh, one, um, uh, United Nations and various other so-called intergovernmental organizations. Um, of which there are more than 1,000 today. Secondly, there are international non-governmental organizations, NGOs, of which there are about 30,000 today. And um, in my study, I have felt that this has to be something that we have to pay due attention to. Historians have not quite done that, uh, including myself. I think most historians of international relations have tended to focus on what one state does to another, or interstate affairs. What the United States has formulated its foreign policy toward the Soviet Union, toward China, or what those countries have responded to the United States. So interstate affairs are very, very important. Of course, they are the, the key facts, I think, in international relations. But it has, felt, it has seemed to me that one cannot ignore the fact that all of a sudden, from almost zero a century ago, or uh, well, certainly at the beginning of the 19th century, there were hardly any international organizations, the kind that I talked about, that all of a sudden we have so many of those. About 30,000 uh, international NGOs and about a couple thousand international organizations, intergovernmental organizations. They have to mean something, um, otherwise they do not have 
grown so much. And that's a story that I have tried to tell in my book. And I put that in the framework of uh, what I could call international civil society or global community. And um, I thought what I would do this afternoon is to read uh, some pages from one of the chapters. Now, what I try to do in the book is to go back to the beginning of the 19th century and trace the evolution of these international organizations up to this, uh, the present. But actually, it might be interesting to uh, read from a chapter that deals with the phenomenon in the 1970s, in part because I was last year in the 1970s, 1976, but also because in many ways, the 1970s, uh, uh, in retrospect, appeared to have been a very critical dec decade in the development of those organizations and therefore in the evolution of the international civil society. So I'd like to uh, start uh, with that and go into my chapter. Uh, not, I don't have a time to read all the, the entire chapter, but I'll try to read excerpts from that. Historians seem to agree that uh, international relations entered a new phase during the 1970s, whereas the 25-year period before that, that is between 1945 and 1970, may probably be comprehended within the usual framework of the Cold War. During the 1970s, so many drastic changes took place that the decade may be said to have marked the beginning of a new era. Among such transforming events, were uh, the rapprochement, as it's very well known, between the United States and the People's Republic of China, the deterioration in Soviet-Chinese relations, and the detente between Washington and Moscow. The Cold War, in the sense of the bipolar division of the globe, lost whatever meaning it had ever had. As if to symbolize the passing of an era, the United States war um, in Vietnam fought in the name of containing Soviet and Chinese communism was brought to an end also in this decade, and it was promptly followed by a Chinese invasion of the newly united Vietnam, something that would have been incomprehensible in the world conceived in the vocabulary of the Cold War. But that was not all, as we remember, of the 1970s. In the international economic sphere, the 1970s saw such cataclysmic changes that historian Eric Hobsbawm characterizes the history of the world during the 20 years after 1973 the, uh, as the crisis decades, in contrast to what he calls the golden age that um, had been there uh, in its framework between 1945 and the early 1970s. In, in terms of the economic um, cataclysm of the 1970s, we remember things like the fact that in 1971, the United States government decided to decouple, um, that is, uncouple the dollar from gold, and that the value of the dollar began falling against the currencies of most European nations and of Japan. There grew profound instability in the international currency market as a result which was a departure from the so-called Bretton Woods system that had been based on stable rates of exchange between the dollar and other currencies. Then in 1973 and again in 1979, the OPEC countries adopted the policy of reducing the petroleum output almost overnight tripling and then quadrupling the worldwide price of crude oil. 
The result was a worldwide shortage of oil, a major source of energy for many countries, and therefore a hyperinflation as consumer prices rose everywhere. The world economy that has steadily expanded after the Second World War now began to stagnate, and even the United States, Western European countries, and Japan recorded zero or minus growth rates. All these developments indeed impressed contemporary observers that the golden age of economic recovery, growth, and prosperity had come to an end. Now, these are very well-known uh, phenomena, and um, that's the usual story of what happened in the 1970s. But underneath these rather dramatic developments, it seems to be possible to point to another, no less profound transformation in international affairs that, however, is rarely mentioned uh, in history books. I have uh, been reading various accounts of um, world history, 20th century history, and so on, that have been written uh, in the recent years. None of them really goes into this other uh, hidden aspect of um, um, the change that took place in the 1970s, and that's what I'd like to be doing this afternoon. This change um, is uh, something that was brought about by the fantastic growth in the number and activities of what I have called international organizations. To begin with, the number of both intergovernmental organizations, such as United Nations, and international NGOs, which had begun to rise in the 1960s, grew phenomenally during the 1970s. According to the Union of International Associations, which kept uh, these records, the uh, IGOs, so that intergovernmental organizations, grew from about 280 in 1972 to over 1,500 by 1984. And international NGOs grew from about 2,700 in 1972 to more than 12,000 by 1984. Now, both types of these organizations had been steadily growing, as I said, but never with such speed. Why such a burst of international organizations in the 1970s? One way of understanding this phenomenon probably would be to put it into the larger framework of the growth of the so-called non-state or non-territorial actors in the world. For instance, the 1970s began to develop a multinational economy in the world, symbolized by the mushrooming of multinational business enterprises. There were about 900 uh, of uh, multinationals by the, end, by, by the end of the 1970s. Of course, such enterprises had existed earlier, but their number seems to have begun to grow impressively only during the 1970s. Together with the international organizations, both governmental and non-governmental, these business enterprises were yet additional evidence of the growth of non-state actors, perhaps suggesting that states alone were incapable of coping with many issues of the day, of taking advantage of new opportunities to promote their interests. At bottom, therefore, may have been the phenomenon that the relative importance of the role of the sovereign state in human affairs was diminishing. Was this because there were too many novel problems for any state to deal with? Or did the development 
reflect a declining faith in government, as witnessed by the Watergate event in this country, was the most crucial fact the growth of civil society in many, if not all, parts of the globe. Clearly, all these other, and other factors were involved, and they provide the background for a discussion of international relations during the 1970s. It's clear, I think, that there was a remarkable coincidence at this time of the growth of international organizations on the one hand and of domestic civil society on the other in the early years after the early 1970s, in the years after the early 1970s. Even some countries that had not hitherto tolerated anything close to the civil society began to witness their emergence. For instance, Charter 77, which was an informal association of intellectuals in Czechoslovakia, founded in 1977 to call for respect for human rights was one example, and Poland's better known labor organization, Solidarity, was another. Now that was established in 1979, also in the same decade, which started out as a trade union of dance dock workers, of course, as we all know, led by Walesa, but as an association outside the government or the Communist Party, it soon attracted a membership, totaling some nine million, and became a model for similar organizations in other socialist states. In the Soviet Union and elsewhere, students and intellectuals and dissidents began steadily bolder, uh, became steadily bolder and began to organize themselves. The associations, many of them were clandestine, may not have been exact replicas of non-governmental organizations in democratic countries, but they were clearly becoming self-conscious members of a civil society that was emerging in Eastern Europe. In, indeed, the concept, it seems, of civil society itself came to be developed during the 1970s as representing forces that were not controlled by the state. Those involved in the construction of non-state organizations in Eastern Europe were conscious of the international implications of what they were doing. They were in, in increasing contact with developments in the West, and European and American capital was beginning to be invested in the Soviet Union and elsewhere to produce larger quantities of consumer goods. There is little doubt that for intellectuals, journalists, and labor unions, and others in these countries, freedom of association came to be seen as a key aspect of a contemporary Western society, and that they believed this was where they would have to start in order to become part of the global development. But I also think that civil society grew outside of Europe as well in the 1970s, although the impetus for the growth of non-governmental organizations may have been more social and economic than political. In Latin America, Asia, and Africa, a large number of voluntary agencies sprang up to cope with problems of poverty, hunger, and health to complement the work done by the public authorities. Often, governments are too weak or corrupt or inefficient to administer social services, and they willingly or unwillingly turn their tasks over to non-state bodies. Why their number should have begun to increase during the 1970s uh, is uh, still unclear, but it is remarkable that so many community organizations that are active today seem to have originated at that time, 1970s. 
Perhaps it was the world economic disarray of the early 1970s that hit particularly hard those third world countries that were not endowed with rich natural resources such as oil. It may also have had something to do with the spectacular rise, spectacular rise in cross-national migration. Driven by civil strife, ethnic conflict and poverty, millions crossed borders, often illegally. Fortunate ones found refugee in richer countries of Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, and so on, but a greater number ended up in refugee camps. In Africa, for instance, the number of refugees grew from 300,000 in 1960 to 1 million by 1970 and to over 3 million by 1980. Even among those who stayed home, sprawling slums were a common sight in larger cities. Voluntary work was often the only effective means of dealing with such a critical situation. Small-scale community organizations were founded, and successful ones inevitably grew larger as they expanded the scope of their activities. Even such organizations, however, held political connotations inasmuch as they were involving people, that is, the poor, the women, and the other marginalized groups in community affairs. They were engaged in grassroots, bottom-up efforts, so to speak, in contrast to the top-down pattern of governmental programs for relief and economic development. Thus, in many instances, community organizations served to empower people who had hitherto been deprived of a voice in their own governance. It was but a step from here to an active campaign for their rights. Such a development seems to have exemplified many non-governmental organizations in the third world during the 1970s. Thus, in the non-Western part of the world, too, it seems possible to say that civil society was emerging. But the civil society's growth in many parts of the world was not limited to domestic organizations. Branches of international non-governmental organizations were established everywhere. Uh, their total number increased from something like 36,000. These are the branches of our NGOs in different countries. There were about 36,000 of those in 1966, grew to about 52,000 by 1977, and uh, close to 80,000 by 1983. In 1977, uh, it is recorded that the Soviet Union belonged to 43 international non-governmental organizations, and China belonged to 71 already. These are much smaller figures, of course, compared to the number of international organizations in the United States, uh, which numbered more than 1,000, or even Japan, which was still a, civil, a few hundred at the time. But they were nevertheless indicative of a trend. There were branches of uh, NGOs all over the world, in Africa, Western Hemisphere, and Asia, so that it was almost as if the whole globe was becoming dotted with domestic and international non-governmental organizations. Added, added to them were local offices of intergovernmental organizations, totaling more than 6,000 in 1977. These numbers show that the new international order that was being talked about in, the, um, view, in view of the fact that uh, those geopolitical changes that I mentioned at, at the outset were taking place, the so-called new international order that was being talked about at the geopolitical level 
had a counterpart in the emerging global community, a global civil society consisting of thousands of intergovernmental organizations and international non-governmental organizations. That seems to have been the major characteristic of international affairs in the 1970s. And now, the next several minutes, I'd like to give some sp uh, specific examples of those organizations. I cannot examine these thousands of organizations that were existing at the time, but it seems to me that there were um, fields that tended to uh, attract many of those. Um, fields such as human rights, humanitarian relief, development assistance, environmental protection, and cultural exchange. These five, plus peace and disarmament, had been among the most important objectives of international organizations even before the 1970s. While peace advocacy was by no means inactive by them, the easing of Cold War tensions in the 1970s, I think, had the effect of eclipsing that peace as a major endeavor for international organizations. According to some recent uh, survey, whereas um, there, there had been some 20 international NGOs, for example, concerned with peace issues in 1963, the number had declined to 14 by 1973. There were further fluctuations in years to come, and while it is impossible to generalize, it may be argued that the five fields that I mentioned at the outset were now considered more important, more urgent than the peace issues per se. In the 1950s and 60s, it seems to me that peace was the overriding concern of so many of these international organizations. Whereas in the 1970s, there are so many other environment, human rights, and so on that came to dominate the attention. That's um, a very important phenomenon that um, we notice for the 1970s. To start with a brief, uh, with a brief discussion of human rights, one interesting development during the 1970s was that the increasing attention was being paid to women's rights. The years 1975 to 1985, according to historian Harriet Alonso, were 10 years of unprecedented global organizing among women's groups. These years were de designated by the United Nations as International Women's Years. And 1975 was again designated by the UN as the International Women's Year which uh, is an indication that at both non-governmental and intergovernmental levels, women's movements were becoming an important part of any discussion of international affairs. Even outside Western Europe and North America, where women's organizations had a long histories, similar movements developed to such an extent that in 1975, an International Congress of Women was convened uh, in Mexico City, the first ever of its kind in terms of the scope of participation uh, taking place outside of uh, Western Europe or North America. Not surprisingly, the participants resolved to create networks of women's organizations throughout the world. It was recognized that women's conditions and lifestyles varied from country to country and from one culture to another, but that there was um, the belief that by coming together, women's groups from different parts of the globe could develop a common consciousness, a consciousness of shared concerns and commitments. This was reflected in the publication starting again in 1975 
of Women's International Network News, a quarterly journal of information, and in the first international tribune even on crimes against women held in Brussels in 1976. Whereas earlier, women's international movements had focused on peace issues, especially against nuclear armament, the easing of Cold War tensions during the 1970s seems to have enabled them to deal with other matters as well. It is significant, for instance, that in 1974, a new organization, Women for Racial and Economic Equality, was established in the United States, which seems to suggest that marginalized and disadvantaged systems of segments of the population could join forces with women everywhere to search for a new order at home and in the world. In that broad sense, human rights were becoming a major theme of international affairs. Three disparate events of the, the 1970s will demonstrate this particular, these examples will demonstrate this rather graphically. One example I would like to mention was the 1975 Helsinki Accord on human rights adopted at the meeting of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, the so-called CSCE, a body that had just been organized by members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the Warsaw Pact. Significantly, the declaration defined human rights broadly and referred to the right of the individual to know and to act upon his rights. That such a principle was never wholly accepted in socialist regimes was less important than that the nations belonging to the opposite sides in the Cold War should now put their signatures to the same document, indicating that they were willing to embrace common values regarding the human condition. In 1978, Helsinki Watch was established to monitor the signatory nation's compliance with the 1975 agreement. In that process, each staff met often clandestinely with dissident individuals and groups, thus encouraging the growth of civil society in the Soviet Union and Eastern European countries. Another interesting example concerned the rights of the handicapped, those who were considered physically, mentally, and otherwise handicapped and had traditionally been subject to harsh discrimination in their societies. Here again, the United Nations recognized the international significance of the problem by issuing a declaration on the human rights of the mentally handicapped in 1971, and another encompassing all types of the handicapped in 1975. These declarations called upon all countries to improve the conditions of these people. In many parts of the world, handicapped persons and their relatives and friends began to establish organizations to lobby their respective states for more support, financial and moral. For example, in the United States, the handicapped asserted the rights as consumers. That is, they should, they, they insisted, have the right to choose their own rehabilitation programs, hospital and institutional care and welfare facilities. Similar movements developed elsewhere, and in time there grew awareness that the handicapped should organize themselves internationally. And that awareness, like um, so many other movements at this time, would eventually culminate in an organization, in this case an organization known as Disabled Persons International, founded in 1981. A third example to illustrate the grow growing impact the human rights question is making upon the world scene was the award in 1977 of the Nobel uh, Peace Prize to Amnesty International. Amnesty International itself had been organized uh, established in 1961. 
and since its founding, it has rapidly organized branches in various parts of the world and widened the range of its activities. It was particularly active in sending observers to prisons to ensure proper treatment of inmates. But I do think it was very significant that it was only at this time in the 1970s that its activities were recognized by the award of the Nobel Prize. Thus, in 1975, the International Council of Nurses um, declared that the nurses in the care of detainees and prisoners must report all instances of physical or mental ill treatment to Amnesty International. And Amnesty International made sure that such a rule was carried out. Uh, it, this organization also took seriously a declaration by the World Medical Association uh, at this meeting in Tokyo in 1975 that obliged doctors not to condone countenance or participate in torture. The fact that most countries of the world were willing to let amnesty personnel visit their prisons indicates the tremendous authority at this time that uh, this organization was, was beginning to assume in international affairs. Given the rising global concern with human rights, it is not surprising that the United States government under the presidency of Jimmy Carter, as you recall, should have responded to the situation by establishing a Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs within the State Department. The Bureau was headed by the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and worked energetically to promote democratization. Although President Carter's so-called human rights diplomacy came under criticism for its lack of consistency. For example, he insisted on democratization in South Korea, but not as firmly in Pakistan. I, I think it should be recognized that as president of a sovereign government, he was under certain constraints, and he had to juggle various demands. But consistency was something that could be provided by international organizations, not by separate states, where governments could pay only limited attention, non-governmental organizations made sure that pressure would be kept up on behalf of incarcerated political dissidents and other victims of discrimination and injustice. And there was a great deal of cooperation in this regard between intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. For example, the United Nations Center for Human Rights was in constant communication with NGOs and was receiving information from them on abuses of human rights in many parts of the globe. All these activities in the human rights field did not mean, however, that international organizations were neglecting other areas of their traditional and recent concern. So I, I go to the um, next um, area of the activity, humanitarian relief. Here, uh, the United Nations Children's Fund, for example, UNICEF, uh, which had, of course, existed for some time, continued to be very active uh, in providing health services to children and their mothers. Some 70 million people were reportedly being served by clinics equipped with UNICEF in the mid-1970s, a high point in UNICEF activities. But other organizations were also created in the 1970s, such as AfriCare and Food for the Hungry International, both established in 1971. AfriCare complemented, complemented work done by other institutions and worked closely with WHO, the World Health Organization, and other intergovernmental organizations to provide medical service and health care facilities in remote areas of the African continent. Food for the Hungry International, um, established in 1971, did exactly that, distributed food 
and uh, other essential medical supplies to victims of famine in Africa and Asia, North America, and elsewhere. In 1976, a new organization was set up in London, so-called the Appropriate Health Resources and Technology Action Group, to serve as a repository of information concerning public health research and administration. It was around this time, it seems, that the notion of primary health care became incorporated into the vocabulary of international organizations. At an international conference convened by the World Health Organization and UNICEF in Alma Ata, in 1978, and attended by representatives of 143 countries, as well as 67 international organizations, a declaration was issued asserting the rights and duties of people everywhere to participate in primary health care in the spirit, as they said, of self-reliance and self-determination. Health for All by the year 2000 was adopted as the goal toward which nations and international organizations were to strive. No international non-governmental organization founded during the 1970s in the field of humanitarian relief has been as well known as the influential Doctors Without Borders. Um, that too was created at this time in 1971, owing to the initiative of a handful of volunteers and donors, mostly from France, who were committed to the idea that humanitarian activities recognized no national boundaries and that physicians and nurses would go wherever they were needed to alleviate victims of famine, disease, or natural disasters. It seems that the label uh, without borders or without frontiers was so attractive to many organizations that in France alone, more than 30 uh, such organizations had um, this without borders, some frontiers uh, in their names. As a founder of the doctors, um, Without Borders organization wrote, in a way it was quite frankly subversive in the sense that it would not always wait for or go through authorization by governmental approval before acting, and it would not hesitate to publicize its activities as well as the plight of the people to which they were res res responses. During the 1970s, the doctors and aid workers dispatched by this organization became involved in relief work in Nicaragua after an earthquake, or Vietnam after the war, or Thailand, to provide assistance to refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia, and civil African states to care for refugees fleeing civil strife. In such activities, Doctors Without Borders often frankly confronted the issue of human rights and was willing to disseminate information on the violations of those rights. The line between humanitarian relief and human rights act activism was rather thin, an important feature of international non-governmental activities during the 1970s. The Alma Arthur Declaration that I mentioned spoke of the principle of making primary care accessible to individuals and families in the communities through their full participation. People's involvement in their own health care and more broadly in their own development was being asserted as a right. But this will come into conflict with local political ambitions and traditional prejudices. From beginning, therefore, volunteers working for Doctors Without Borders and the other organizations encountered situations where the implementation of humanitarian activities experienced difficulties in the absence of a system of governance where individuals could assert their rights. In such instances, they would have to organize themselves as autonomous entities, something state authorities would not easily tolerate. 
Thus, here too, the growth of civil society was emerging as an inevitable byproduct of international humanitarian work. Third, the third category would be development assistance. The 1970s witnessed a continued growth in the number of international organizations in the area of developmental assistance. This clearly reflected the fact that the rising cost of energy and the fierce trade competition that resulted from it was making economic conditions of developing countries worse than ever relative to those of the more advanced countries. The um, developing nations came to be known collectively as the South and the more advanced countries as the North, and it seemed as if the North-South rift was becoming even more serious than the geopolitical conflict between East and West. As many third world countries found it difficult to obtain revenue by marketing their primary products abroad, whose prices tended to be depressed throughout the decade, they began pressing for what they called a new international economic order, in which their special circumstances would be given consideration and the products given preferential treatment. Because the governments of the richer countries would only make partial concessions in this regard, it was natural that private groups, once again, would become more deeply involved than ever in providing developmental assistance. Many of them were organized in France, a country that I've studied probably more than about other countries, where, as before, the Catholic Church expanded the scope of existing organizations and created new ones to expand the assistance programs to former French colonies in Africa and Latin America. One such organization, the so-called Catholic Committee Against Hunger and for Development, um, talked about or well, devised a new slogan which said that nothing will change in the third world if nothing changes at home. Such a view expressed the recognition that developmental assistance made sense only in the context of a world that was becoming closely interconnected and in which values such as freedom, justice, and human rights applied everywhere, at home as well as abroad. For this reason, development assistance made sense only in the con uh, I'm sorry, for this reason, development assistance programs and projects came to have an important human rights component, which I think was another remarkable development of the 1970s. We can see this, for example, in the funding of the Center for Development and Population Activities in 1975 in Washington, aimed at empowering women at all levels of society to be full partners in development. As the insertion of the word population in this title suggests, this organization stressed women's reproductive health and family planning as essential aspects of economic development. In other words, social and cultural questions were becoming inseparable from development assistance, uh, which I take to have been another important development of the 1970s. For example, in 1971, a consultative group on international agricultural research was launched at the behest of the World Bank, as well as several governments and non-government organizations. And initially, this was designed to help agricultural research, especially rice production, but the group soon became involved in broader issues, such as farming systems, conservation of genetic resources, and other phenomena that are the ecological, economic, and social factors. 
About the same time, in the 1970s, the World Council of Churches established a program to combat racism with a view to helping individuals and groups in Portuguese Africa, as well as Rhodesia and South Africa, that were struggling against colonialism and racism. Oxfam America, founded in 1970, often took the United States government to task for its aid policy that seemed to help the existing regimes entrench themselves in power instead of promoting the well-being of ordinary citizens. Reflecting a similar concern, the Society for International Development adopted jobs and justice as objectives for the 1970s, just being defined as an inclusive concept, including justice was here uh, being defined as an inclusive concept, including cultural diversity and safeguarding the environment. This phrase here in this organization, Society for International Development, the fact that even a society that was founded to promote uh, developmental assistance should now be talking about cultural diversity and safeguarding the environment is also typical of this age in which things like cultural diversity and environmental safeguarding were beginning to claim the serious attention of governments and non-state actors in the 1970s, which um, had some serious implications for the decades international relations. Not just in connection with humanitarian relief or developmental assistance, but with regard to many other issues, these two were entering into the vocabulary of international discourses. As we all know, a landmark event in international environmentalism was the United Nations Conference on the Natural Environment convened in Stockholm in 1972. A product of the UN resolution going back to 1968 calling for such a gathering, the Stockholm Conference attracted representatives from 114 countries. The gathering was often quite contentious, as could have been predicted, but the remarkable thing is that the delegates adopted a resolution calling upon the United Nations to establish a special body to deal with environmental issues throughout international cooperation. This recommendation resulted in the establishment in 1973 of the United Nations Environmental Program. And that became a major forum and has remained a major forum for defining international environmental policy in connection with development assistance. Third world countries insisted and development and developed countries usually agreed that the enforcement of environmentally sound programs should not be at the expense of the former's sound economic development or trade, and that the cost of instituting such programs should be borne by the richer nations. But the important thing to notice is that the objectives of environmentalism and developmentalism could be recognized and be dealt with at the forum where those differences could be aired and ironed out to the extent possible. That seems to have been a very good example of the impact of new issues upon international governance. The Stockholm Conference produced almost immediate results in Europe, where an enlarged European community, which had been also, which has been enlarged in 1973, with the addition of Great Britain and Iceland, um, took environmental issues quite seriously. Through the European Council, which is the European community's uh, governing body, the num 
the member governments adopted the environmental action plans and at the same time began coordinating their plans so as to develop common regulations for environmental protection. In the meantime, European nations as well as others drew up a large number of conventions throughout the 1970s dealing with such specific issues as the prohibition of the emplacement of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction on the seabed and the ocean floor, and so on. While national governments became increasingly interested in environmental issues, non-governmental organizations that had already been active in this field redoubled their efforts, and many new organizations were established in the 1970s as well. Some of those organizations were represented at the Stockholm Conference, while others held their own meetings, apart from the United Nations-sponsored gathering. The agendas were not always compatible, but their presence demonstrated that they could not be ignored, those NGOs could not be ignored in any discussion of environmental problems. What the Stockholm Conference did was to provide an occasion for internationalizing the activities of many non-governmental um, bodies concerned with the environment. As of 1973, according to one survey, there existed 10 international NGOs in the environmental field. Um, one of the most influential of which was the Friends of the Earth, established in the United States in 1969. And in the 1970s, this organization, Friends of the Earth, established branches in many other countries to disseminate the information and campaign actively for the preservation of the natural environment. After the Stockholm Conference of 1972, other organizations were created so that within 10 years, the number of environmental international NGOs reached 26. In 1974, a Center for International Environmental Information was established in New York, and in 1980, um, its name was changed to the World Environmental Center, a clear indication of the globalizing trend of such activities. An interesting development of the 1970s was that the preservation of the natural environment was often coupled with the preservation of historical and cultural landmarks. In 1972, at the UNESCO meeting in Paris, a convention concerning the protection of the world cultural and, and natural heritage was, uh, national heritage was signed by 75 countries, and the United States was the first nation to ratify the convention. The coupling of cultural and natural resources protection showed that culture and nature were beginning to be seen not as opposites, but as closely integrated so that it would be impossible to talk of preserving one at the expense of the other. Just as a endangered species, needed protection, rare historical artifacts had to be treated with care lest they should disappear. According to the 1972 convention, individual countries were to pre prepare a list of historical landmarks within their borders from which a num uh, number would be registered with an international committee. And this international committee would compile a master list of the world's most precious historical heritages and those that required immediate care would be provided with funds for restoration and protection. 
The assumption here was that these cultural monuments, just like the natural habitat, belong to the whole of humanity and that it was the responsibility of all nations to ensure both natural and cultural survival. Now I get to the realm of um, uh, cultural communication. Here it seems to be possible to note um, in the uh, growing popularity of the idea of multiculturalism that uh, I think began its appearance. The concept and term multiculturalism began to be used in the 1970s. That too, I think, manifested the same concern um, as the concern that was behind the movement to preserve historical heritages. Because multiculturalism connoted the idea that culture must be seen as pluralistic, consisting of divergent ways of dealing with the human condition. Just as the preservation of the pristine oceanic conditions and the endangered wildlife was a moral imperative for the whole world, respect for different ways of life and thought came to be seen as an important agenda for international affairs. Pleas for cross-cultural understanding had, of course, long existed and produced many important movements and organizations. But a sense of global cultural consciousness um, seems to have entered a new phase in the 1970s because of the self-consciousness with, with which the idea of multiculturalism was promoted. Um, and my argument here would be that we have to uh, understand something like multiculturalism in the context of other international developments such as environmentalism and the protection of historical monuments and uh, also the mushrooming of non-governmental organizations. I'll come back to this point, but uh, I wanted to mention that cultural uh, aspects of international affairs, so international cultural and the educational exchange programs were still very much part of um, international organizations' activities in the 1970s. We tend to forget those uh, because of our fascination with um, activist advocacy groups such as uh, human rights organizations and environmentalist organizations. But purely in terms of number, exchange organizations continue to overshadow those other associations. International organizations promoting education and cultural exchange grew just as rapidly as the other organizations. And I think they all contributed to strengthening transnational networks. For one thing, the 1970s saw significant developments in exchange programs between East and West, or two sides in the reigning Cold War, uh, and between the West and China. In 1971, UNESCO began a World Scientific and Technical Information Service to provide bibliographic information on published articles, um, which numbered over one million a year, um, in, um, which appeared in 70,000 specialized journals. And this kind of uh, bibliographic list provided an opportunity for scientists from the Soviet Union, from China, and other countries to join, in a sense, the international community of scientists. The 1975 Helsinki Accord contained the so-called Basket Three, which dealt with cultural relations and endorsed exchange programs between NATO and Warsaw Pact countries. 
from about this time, culture exchange between socialist and capitalist nations picked up momentum. For instance, American and Soviet scientists began collaborating in energy and space research, exemplified by the Apollo and Soyuz joint space mission undertaken in 1975. Likewise, the rapprochement between the United States and the People's Republic of China in 1972 reopened channels of communication and the Committee on Scholarly Exchange with the People's Republic of China, which uh, was established in Washington at this time um, in cooperation with the National Science Foundation, began uh, promoting uh, scholarly exchange programs with China. And in China, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, a Beijing organization, played a key role in undertaking these programs. I'm going to omit the details on this as uh, I'm running out of time here. Let me just say that the growth in number and scope of international exchange programs um, was uh, giving rise to some serious rethinking about the nature of uh, international exchange programs in various uh, parts of the world. It so happens that in the early 1970s, in the United States, Great Britain, France, and Germany, uh, uh, their governments undertook a study to re-examine the meaning of uh, these exchange programs. I don't have time to summarize those, but fundamentally, the idea is that uh, various governments supported the idea, the further uh, idea of the further uh, growth of uh, cultural exchange programs, educational exchange programs, but uh, they almost invariably said that much would have to be undertaken by private organizations. And, and so, um, again, the 1970s, in retrospect, were a landmark in that um, with governmental encouragement, a great deal of initiative was undertaken by an uh, increasing number of private uh, uh, organizations, uh, um, which were being almost daily funded to promote various kinds of international cultural activities. And it seems to be possible to say that against this kind of background um, of um, the importance of uh, cultural communication, which has been emphasized by governmental and non-governmental activities, we can um, understand something about the phenomenon of um, multiculturalism as well. There was a serious problem in that those espousing multiculturalism uh, often insisted on the autonomy of each culture defined by religion, by ethnicity, or other factors. The world in such a view consisted of a variety of specifically definable cultures, each with its own values and agendas, and therefore no culture was inherently superior to the other. Uh, if we were to push such an argument to its extremes, the multiculturalism uh, would be denying that there were universal truths or values, that all cultures were equally valid. The validity or authenticity of a culture must be recognized before constructing any device for cross-cultural communication and cooperation. Um, this is a terribly difficult and fascinating question to which even today I think uh, there is no satisfactory answer, but my point here is that that again is a product of the 1970s. So many different developments uh, were going on in the 1970s, and I think we need to put multiculturalism in the same kind of framework. Because this challenge, multiculturalist challenge, was um, not just 
a challenge to cultural exchange, but also to human rights, environment, and a host of other causes that are being promoted by intergovernmental organizations and, and non-governmental organizations. Because it could be said that if there were no universal human rights or shared commitment to the protection of the natural habitat, how could they develop a global community of men and women everywhere with common interests and agendas? The 1970s gave rise to such questioning and issues uh, have been around ever since. But precisely for this reason, cross-national exchanges became even more urgent than earlier. Granted that the world is being sub subdivided into self-defining cultures with their own local identities, to leave the matter at that would merely perpetuate the situation and provide no guide for the future. What is important for the 1970s, I think, is that uh, this was taken seriously and uh, communication dialogue among different cultures began to be seen as a key uh, purpose for which many of these organizations functioned. To um, bring all this to a rapid conclusion, I just wanted to quote from a statement made by an Italian uh, official regarding his country's policy on culture exchange um, in 1970. He noted that Italy's policy on culture exchange had evolved from a Eurocentric and elitist view toward an attitude of mass enlightenment and scientifically oriented cooperation. Italy, he said, favored a constructive approach towards understanding between different civilizations, as well as co combating illiteracy in the developing world. Such a statement neatly summed up the broadening of the scope of cultural exchange in the 1970s, promoting understanding among different civilizations and trying to eradicate illiteracy were now among enterprises that were at the core of cross-cultural relations. These efforts were filled with conceptual difficulties, of course, and political obstacles, and yet there were intergovernmental organizations and NGOs ready to meet the challenge. In doing so, those organizations were continuing the attempt at reformulating international affairs. So in these uh, different um, areas, um, cultural exchange, human rights, environment, development assistance, humanitarian relief, what I have tried to do is to show that in the 1970s, there was um, a phenomenal growth in the number and activities and scope of these international organizations. Some are intergovernmental agencies, others are NGOs. They, uh, together with the existing governments, serve to widen the scope of international affairs so that not just uh, peace, but these other questions came to be viewed as international issues, agendas for international action. Um, that's a story that I have been trying to follow in my uh, book, and I talked about 1970s because 1970s were particularly interesting um, in indicating the, the emergence of the, the uh, landmark uh, series of events and uh, forces that are still in existence uh, with us today. So to the extent that one can talk about uh, the emergence of international civil society, I would like to see that 
in the activities of so many of those international organizations. And if this provides a fresh way of looking at international affairs as well as America's role in it, the, the way in which the United States has contributed to the making of such an, an international community, then um, that um, would be uh, my, um, my, my purpose and my hope uh, to, to show that quite apart from interstate uh, relationships among different governments, there is a story to be told, uh, the story of these organizations. Now, this, I think, um, needs to be somehow connected to Thomas Jefferson. This is a, supposed to be a Jefferson lecture, and how do I do that? How do I bring this all together to Thomas Jefferson? Well, I, I cannot. I have to confess that. I, uh, there's no way I can do that, because the world that I've described, the world such as 1970s world, is so far removed from Thomas Jefferson's world in which there were, there were no international organizations. If there were some, there may have been one or two. Historians have recorded a couple of those international organizations in Jefferson's age. And of course, there were far fewer nations also. So I don't want to um, be just uh, clever in just trying to link this uh, to Thomas Jefferson. The, however, I do think that um, we are talking about in part, America's role in the evolution of uh, these organizations and the values and the spirit that sustained them. And when I read in Jefferson's writings, uh, many references to, uh, for example, things like, uh, in his own words, he talked about um, the opinion of the world, or the world public opinion, or uh, the, the region and freedom of the globe was a statement that between state, society and society, the same moral duties exist as between individuals. These kinds of references are in his writings, his conception of the globe um, in which reason and freedom and public opinion count, the idea that uh, between uh, society and society, between nations, same values, um, that uh, govern the conduct of individuals should also apply. Um, these are very much the same identical principles and values on which many of these international organizations are founded. And that's how I think I could maybe, I mean, maybe I'm trying to be too, uh, uh, too arbitrary here, but um, I would like to conclude, uh, it's my uh, expression, sincere thanks for having me invited to give a Jefferson lecture and I've tried to present the case um, for international civil society uh, as, in a sense, as a, a Jeffersonian development. But that's um, up to, uh, to, uh, to you to decide uh, whether Jefferson would have had anything to do with all of this. But I do think that in inspiration, in the, the spirit, in um, his emphasis on civil society, um, the, uh, if an international civil society is, is to emerge, that would not be too um, alien to his way of looking at the world. Thank you very much. Perhaps we can prevail upon our guest for a few questions. Um, please uh, raise your hand. Yes. 
Um, in your in your talk, early in your talk, you mentioned two phenomena briefly uh, that happened during the seventies. One was the apparent weakness of national governments to solve problems. The other was the emergence of multinational corporations. Um, and the first one, the weakness of national governments, was tied to the rise of NGOs. Um, now, 20 or 30 years down the road, here we are in the year 2000, could you, can you relate um, your research from the 70s to the phenomenon of late 1999 and 2000 with the growth of a global citizens movement as expressed in the uh, direct action in Seattle and against the World Bank and IMF in Washington, D.C. Uh, coalitions of NGOs, hundreds and hundreds of organizations coming together in coalitions to uh, you know, push back the international financial institutions like the World Bank, WTO, and so on. Right. Um, the question is about uh, NGOs, particularly Seattle-type demonstrations and activities that um, were opposed to many of the uh, multinational corporations' activities, international financial um, activities, and so on. They are all part of um, the contemporary world, I think. That is, um, the world that we live in, the world that really becomes quite visible in the 1970s, if my reading of it uh, is, um, make, makes any sense. On the one hand, you do have the emergence of uh, multinational corporations. Um, on, on the other side of the um, picture is probably the uh, emergence of um, uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Um, how are they related? I, I think in, at Seattle we saw that they are related in a very antagonistic fashion. That some of the many of the NGOs uh, were opposed to um, multinational business activities. Um, my sense is that both do have something in common. They, they have they share something in common in that they are both um, international or transnational, global. Um, that is. Multinational corporations, those are, I guess, you have, they have to be viewed as transnational, cross-national organizations, right, of engaging business or um, going all over the world in search of capital and labor, those kinds of uh, practices, non-territorial business activities. NGOs are also non-territorial. The, the definition of an NGO is that it's a non-governmental organization, but it's also a non-profit. I mean, I, I would define an NGO as non-governmental, non-profit, voluntary association. Um, also, non-military, that is, I, I'm excluding terrorist organizations and such. Um, but these are voluntary organizations, but with global concerns, the environment, the human rights. And sometimes their objectives are in search of um, the environment, uh, environment in integrity, or human rights, and so on, can come into conflict with um, uh, what uh, multinational business corporations engage um, are engaged in. But they are both global forces, and they are here, uh, I think. And my sense is that instead of they are uh, waging a, a struggle as to which side is going to prevail. 
uh, they are just going to be around. I think. I mean, international business corporations are going to be uh, going to continue to exist. Uh, NGOs are going to continue to exist, and both will be around. I think, and therefore, the only way in which we can see some kind of a more harmonious or some kind of more accommodating relationship there would be for them to cooperate with each other. And there are some instances in which some business organizations, I think, have asked some of these environmental NGOs uh, for consultation um, and advice and so on. I mean, I think they have probably they may be isolated phenomena, but I do read um, in, in, the, in the press uh, in a couple of uh, more recent years there is some willingness on the part of these organizations to come together rather than uh, establishing a mutually antagonistic relationship, adversarial relationship. Uh, just as uh, one hopes that the existing states and NGOs would uh, develop a cooperative relationship rather than an antagonistic relationship, um, that's the hopeful scenario. If, if one is going to be looking for some kind of a more hopeful, accommodating future, it would be one in which all these forces um, toward a more interdependent world would, uh, would cooperate rather than um, um, develop a, a, sense of a sense of collision and crisis. But that remains to be seen. Um, in the 1970s, this was only dimly seen, and what's rather remarkable, I think, is that the kind of development that I sketched for the 70s, which had had its antecedents in the 60s and 50s and so on, but, but uh, became much more accentuated in the 1970s and more, even more so in the 80s and 90s. Um, inevitably, there have been tensions and, and um, um, unanticipated problems, uh, such as the Seattle uh, phenomenon. And uh, we, we will continue to see those, I think, various developments. But it seems to me that this is, um, they're all part of what's known, what's referred to as globalization. Globalization is not just an economic phenomenon, but um, uh, it's also a social phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon. And uh, what we are saying is not a, a, a conflict between forces of globalization and the forces against globalization, but I think forces within the frame of globalization, some pushing for further business integration and so on, and others uh, giving priority to human, human rights or environmental questions, I think. But um, um, that's how I come out on, on that question. Now, yes. You could relate the idea of the making of an international civil society to changing conceptions of sovereignty. To um, relate the development of civil society to the future of sovereignty? Is it? Well, you, you refer yeah. to the fact that in France in particular, there, I think you cited 35 different organizations that call themselves sovereign without borders. This would seem to be a challenge, this idea of the importance mm -hmm. of sovereignty. I, th I think it, it is a fascinating dialectic between um, 
non-governmental organizations in particular, and international inter-governmental organizations as well on the one side, and national sovereignty, the concept of national sovereignty on the other. This is what uh, some international relations people refer to as the traditional Westphalian system um, of um, sovereign states. Is the world an arena for the interplay of sovereign nations? Uh, each nation uh, with its own sovereign rights and pursuing its national interests and so on. Or are there other global interests? Are there shared concerns? And to the extent that um, many of these international organizations exemplify cross-national shared concerns and interests, they do challenge the sovereign rights of nations. I think that's why the founder of the uh, Doctors Without um, Borders even used the term subversive. Like he said he felt he was doing something subversive because um, such, an such an organization uh, without borders, they don't recognize any borders, and just, they just go wherever they are, earthquake victims and so on. Um, if you push this very far, then you're going to be engaging uh, in acts that could be uh, even more um, subversive of, of our state sovereignty, state rights, and so on. Uh, that's not going to happen. I, I think the states are going to continue to exist, and, and they would um, be reigning in, as they already have, I guess, on some of these activities, um, particularly in areas where you have uh, um, much more unstable kind of state organizations outside of uh, the West, I mean, in um, Central America and, and, and Africa, and so they are, in Southeast Asia, there are cases where uh, NGOs have got into trouble with local representatives, local governments. Um, but it seems to me that the idea of the sovereign state um, has been steadily being compromised um, by various developments. And environment is a very good example, I think, that um, I, I mentioned uh, the fact that um, the European community, the European Union now, uh, has certain environmental standards that have to be uh, coped with or accepted by uh, the member states. Uh, no country is 100% uh, sovereign anymore. And, and I think what NGOs have tried to do in cooperation with the states and with the international organizations is to develop a set of standards that are accepted by these nations as well as uh, international organizations for the protection of the environment or human rights or other, um, other uh, developments. And so that this, um, we're not going to see the end of the state or the uh, emergence of world government. Um, what we have today is far more complicated because we not only have independent states, uh, 200 of those, plus we have about 2,000 intergovernmental organizations, plus 30,000 international NGOs. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a world um, extremely complex. Uh, whether that world is going to be better for um, the whole of, um, for the entire world, for people everywhere, whether that world uh, serves the interests of people better than the world in which there were no such things, the 19th century world, in which you had only had sovereign states. Very few uh, people have counted about 13 intergovernmental organizations at, at the end of the 19th century. Whether um, the welfare, the interests of um, 
5 billion people in the world today are better served in a system where the, 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 uh, they are just sovereign states, or whether they will be better served when you do have international organizations, when you do have so many thousands of these NGOs. It's a big question today, isn't it? Um, and I, obviously, I have written this book thinking that uh, the interests of um, humanity may possibly be served better when you have uh, these other organizations. But um, I'm not um, advocating um, anarchism. I'm not saying that all these sovereign states should go away, but they're going to remain. But that in many areas, they can compromise, they can come together with these other organizations so that part of the sovereign rights could be given up. I mean, I think this is true in things like human rights. Um, has already become clear, I think. But um, I, I decided to focus on it because um, despite the, the Seattle uh, development of this uh, event last uh, year, and despite the fact that we have a, a more recently in Washington those demonstrations and various uh, cases that have uh, attracted public attention, no historian, to my knowledge, has written a, an examination of the evolution of these, of these organizations over time. Lots of political scientists have written about these organizations in the past 20 years or so, but uh, political scientists have their own agendas. I think they're much more interested in theory and generalizations, prediction about the future, and so on. I, I think um, historians do have an obligation, seems to set the record, to keep the record and, and tell the story of how things got where they have today, and, and that's what uh, I've been trying to do. May I suggest one more question, and then folks who have other questions can join us one-on-one -on -one up here, but the hour is that's fine. Right. Um, I think the United States has been very deeply involved in so many of these uh, um, NGOs. I mean, domestic NGOs are a different story. I mean, there are supposed to be about two million domestic NGOs in the United States. Um, and this is what Jefferson had in mind, Tocqueville, of course, had in mind when he talked about uh, civil society in the United States and so on. Um, Americans have also been quite deeply involved in international um, civil society activities. Uh, I guess one can talk of, refer to a few of those at the very beginning, with the International Red Cross, uh, for example, 
and other organizations that uh, were there um, at the end of the 19th century, in the 20th century, as more and more of those environmental and other organizations were founded. Uh, Americans said they are, some, some of those are founded in the United States, and, and you're right in saying that many of the uh, um, NGOs, particularly developmental NGOs, seem to have been founded in the United States uh, under the American initiative, under American funding. In terms of funding, uh, it's quite true that American foundations, such as the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, have been quite instrumental in um, providing resources for uh, some of these. I think uh, they used to be focused to focus their resources on student exchanges and intellectual exchanges. Now, in, starting in the 1970s, uh, I think Ford began to earmark a part of its budget to the promotion of human rights activities. Um, and so uh, American uh, uh, resources funding is very important, an American initiative. But these are not American um, activities. Some American women to organize a domestic NGO, American women's organization, uh, led to the funding of an international women's association. Uh, but then once it, it happens, quite often, then non-Americans, people from Europe and other parts of the world, uh, would uh, take over, would become very influential members of that. And this needs to be further studied, but my sense is that in more cases, um, I mean, in, at least in some important cases, there is a great deal of um, cooperation. I mean, the recent success case, I guess, was the international uh, campaign against landmines uh, that was um, initiated by, by an American, uh, but it really had all kinds of branches all over the, all, all over the world, and I think um, different branches coordinated the activities quite well. Um, for many countries in um, Asia, Latin America, and so on, I think the, the coming of um, these energy personnel from the United States, from Europe, is the first sign, the first um, impetus uh, toward creating more indigenous NGOs. And they do view it as such, it seems, that um, in so many of these, I mean, I've seen some studies of this in Bangladesh, for example, and uh, Central American countries. The domestic NGOs in those countries do develop with the encouragement, support, funding of American and uh, European NGOs. And um, um, whether you view this as a healthy development or not, I, I tend to put that in the context of the growth of international civil society. Um, so there is an American input, American uh, leadership from time to time, but I think the American leadership uh, tends to be very much part of the international picture. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.